Well, good morning, Riverside. I just have to say that your faith and your love is such a huge encouragement to me and my family, and I know it is to Dan and Jennifer and their family as well. We are so thankful for you. I told Matt that, you know, if today was my last day on this earth, it would just be a beautiful day. Just the worship time, the fellowship together with our church family. Praise God. Well, I know that sometimes it's a little hard for people to get back from the break on time. <laughs> and I always wrestle with, should I just put something unimportant like filler in the front of the message so they don't miss anything important? Or should I put something really important in there so they do miss it and they're committed like getting back quicker? <laughs> I don't have the answer for that. But, and I don't know if this is important or not, but have you ever played the game Two Truths and a Lie? Where you go around the room and each person gives three statements about themselves. Two of them are true and one of them is not. And you have to figure out which one is the lie. Well, I thought we'd give it a try this morning. What do you think? <laughs> and just for fun, I thought, that's not coming up for me, John. We won't give it a try yet. There we go. And just for fun, we'll do it with the elders. We'll use them. What do you think? I'm for it. This is my chance. <laughs> well, and first up, how about Brad? There we go. What could possibly go wrong? Okay, three statements from Brad. Number one. I spent a lot of time cleaning stalls and mowing pastures as an elder. I mean, as a, as a, as a kid. <laughs> Secondly, I lit a campground fire, which started a forest fire. <laughs> and third, I've been known to ride a unicycle while juggling flaming torches. <laughs> That's probably how the forest fire started right there. <laughs> now, who thinks the first one is a lie? What about the second one? What about the third one? Okay, the third one, survey says, no, <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, prove it. I'm from Missouri, show me. All right, up next is Jim. And Jim says, I was abandoned in the woods at night when I was five. That explains a lot. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. I was interviewed on Good Morning America, and I stand a whopping five foot three inches tall. Okay, who thinks number one is the lie? Number two? A lot of people, number two. Number three? Nobody. You guys aren't doing too good. I don't know. I'm going to have to ask him. All right, up oh, next, Stephen. Stephen says this, I was sent away from home at age 14 to an all-boys boarding school 150 miles away. This is what you have to do if you want your kids to grow up to be an elder, see? <laughs> he says, I asked Scotty Pippen to get me a Coke from his kitchen, and he told me to get it myself. <laughs> and finally, I speak Russian. They speak Russian. Oh, yep. That's Russian. My best try. 
Well, how many think number one is the lie? Number two, a few. Number three, about the same. All right. Well, the man speaks Russian. <laughs> Stephen just never ceases to surprise and amaze me. And in Russian, I said, he's telling you the truth. <laughs> but I don't pronounce it well. Okay, up next, Dave. This ought to be interesting. Okay, Dave says, once I wrote a newspaper article in support of the Vietnam War. Number two. I used to jog as a hobby and, and exercise. And number three, one of my favorite people is crocodile hunter Steve Irwin. Crikey, Dave. <laughs> All right, who thinks number one is a lie? Number two? Number three? Oh, I think you might have got this one, yeah. No jogging, no running. All right. Dave, well, finally, here we have Pastor Dan. Let's see what he's been up to. I jumped out of an airplane. Now, when I saw this, I wondered why he kept rattling the door handle when we were flying together. <laughs> now I know. Uh, I held the NAIA Division I record for most hit batters in a season. <laughs> And number three, I have run a 5K race. Now that's less than three miles. Or no, just a little more than three miles actually. Okay, number one, who thinks it's a lie? Number two? Yeah, a lot of you. Number three? A few? Okay. Well, there you go. Dan held that record for over 10 years. <laughs> I mean, that is a feat. He's, a, he's a, quite a pitcher. <laughs> okay. Well, there you have it, the elders. I don't have to do it because I got the clicker. See, <laughs> it's my turn. All right, I'll put mine up there too. All right, Aw, there's my honey. Okay, number one, I accidentally backed over our dog with the car. This is before we had backup cameras. Number two, my mother had to drive me and my date to the prom. That's embarrassing. Number three, my first wife was a licensed pilot. <laughs> Who thinks number one is a lie? Number two? Number three? Okay, it's, it's almost even. Well, yeah, <laughs> number one is a lie. My mother did actually have to drive me and my date to the prom because I didn't have a car. I spent all my money on flying lessons. <laughs> it was kind of humiliating, but good for me. And... Yeah, and just for the record, Deborah is my first wife. <laughs> All right, well, that was fun and informative, <laughs> I would say. Um, if you miss some of it, well, you got to get back faster from the break. And if you're a visitor here this morning, come back next week. You, you won't, Dave will be teaching, and you won't have to put up with this. But seriously, this morning we're continuing in our series called Absolute Certainty. And it's a study. Oh, it's over there. It's a study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And believe it or not, the text this morning is all about truth and lies. But these, these, these truths and these lies are related to Jesus. So how can we know the difference how can we discern truth from lies? How can we engage a lost world in the truth? 
Well, those are some of the things we want to look at this morning. And so as Dan mentioned, the message title is Absolute Certainty of Who Jesus Is. It's 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, and we'll see two parts to this text. First of all, knowing the truth in verses 20 and 21, and foregoing the lies in verses 22 and 23. So as we always do, we'll read through the text first, it's short, and then we'll get into it in more detail. So 1 John 2, beginning in verse 20, reads, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I did not write you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. This is God's word. Truth and lies. And I want to look first at knowing the truth in verses 20 and 21. Now I've been saying since the beginning of the series that this letter is written to believers. There's some scholars out there that think "Eh, not all of it is talking about believers. Well, You'll see, even in these first verses, it just reinforces it. See, back in, the the thing people struggle with is that some of the things he talks about should not be characteristic of believers, but it can be. Like in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, he said, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. We saw it is possible for a believer To walk in darkness and disrupt his fellowship with the Lord. And here in verse 20 of chapter 2, we see again that the whole letter is written to, specifically to believers. Verse 20 reads, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you, all of you know the truth. Did you know that if you are a believer, you have been anointed Now, the concept of anointing is kind of foreign to us in this culture. It almost sounds like mystical, almost creepy, anointing. But here's what it's all about. Most lands in the Bible were dry and arid and people spent a lot of time outdoors. Their skin would get dried out. And so olive oil would be used as a moisturizer. And it even became a custom that when a guest, an honored guest, comes into your home, you anoint them with oil. You don't just provide them shelter and food. You provide them with oil to soothe the skin. So this practice took on a spiritual meaning when God prescribed it for the nation of Israel. And he did it as a means of setting apart people and objects for his special purpose. He made them set apart, holy. And so he gave Israel this fragrant formula to be used only for the purpose of anointing holy things. And it was for anointing the priests and the objects in the tabernacle and later prophets and kings. And I'll bet that fragrance stuck with them and reminded them and probably everybody around them that God is with them. It was a reminder of his presence. Get this. The Hebrew word Messiah literally means anointed one. And the Greek version of that, Christ, means God's anointed one. And Jesus took the words of 
the prophet Isaiah and applied him to himself in Luke chapter 4 when he said, the spirit of the Lord is, is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that wasn't an anointing with oil. It was an anointing with the spirit of God. And it set him apart for a purpose and a holy purpose at that. And what's cool is that we got a visual, a, a picture of this at Jesus' baptism. And it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. That was a visual on this anointing, not with oil, but by the Spirit. And so the New Testament speaks a lot about the Holy Spirit being poured out. Poured out, like it starts appearing, it flows down upon you. Even the Old Testament said it's looked forward to when God would pour out his spirit on all people. He would anoint them with his spirit. And this, in this, it, it's in this sense that verse 20 of our text says, but you, referring to believers, have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. It means that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon every single believer. And God has set you apart for a specific holy purpose. You've been anointed. And this happens at the moment a person believes. Let me read you 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 21 and 22. It says, he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us. And put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Who's that speaking about? Every New Testament believer. This is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Look what else it says in the second half of verse 20. And all of you know the truth. Okay, now I wrestled with this thought this week. Do they know the truth because they have the spirit? Or do they have the spirit because they know the truth? It's almost like the chicken and the egg. Which is it? Well, I think it's both. And I'll do my best to just kind of paint a picture of how I think this works. And so, first of all, John 16, 8 says, When he, the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So the first thing that happens is the Spirit opens our eyes so that we see that we are sinful and we're in need of a Savior. It's, it's known as conviction. He convicts us. And then he places the truth of the gospel before us. And, and he, we see that Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sin. He was raised to life again. But we have to surrender our lives. We have to place our faith in that truth. And when we do, the Spirit regenerates us. He makes us new again. He takes our sin away and exchanges it for the righteousness of Christ. And then he does something even more. He takes up permanent residence within us. And his very presence, 1 Corinthians said, is a seal of ownership and a guarantee of eternal life. So 
when we're first saved, we know the truth of the gospel, but it doesn't stop there. The spirit within us continues to lead us into a deeper and deeper understanding of the truth. And he reveals new truth to us. Listen to what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 13. He said, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. Notice what Jesus called the Holy Spirit? The spirit of truth. And what's one of the roles of the spirit? To guide believers in all truth. With the spirit comes an intuitive ability to know and discern the truth. So here's a question then. Does this mean that we will all know everything and we'll never be wrong about anything? We'll be infallible. Like if we take a math test, we'll get all the answers right because we know the truth. Does it mean that we'll know that Brad juggles with torches on a unicycle? Or that Stephen speaks Russian? Will we know that? No. So what is it saying? Well, the context here is speaking about the truth about Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is talking about. But having said that, the truth about Jesus Christ is foundational knowledge for understanding all other kinds of truth. It's the basis, for instance, of understanding where we came from. It's the key to understanding our own hearts and the desires and the things that we wrestle with. It's a key to understanding God's plan for us, understanding the world around us and the things we see going on in the world. It starts with knowing the truth of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It has to start there first. How do we come to know the Lord, the knowledge of the Lord? By the Spirit and through Jesus Christ. So it begins by knowing the truth about Jesus, and then that leads to knowing Jesus personally. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Thirty times I counted in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Or in the old King James, verily. It means, I tell you the truth. How could he do anything else? He is the truth. And the things he says are truth. Well, when we embrace the truth about Jesus and place our faith in him, we're anointed with the spirit of truth. And the spirit then leads us into this personal relationship with Jesus, who is the truth. And he leads us into an understanding of his word, which is truth. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So the Spirit guides us in all truth because he is the Spirit of truth. Doesn't mean we're infallible, but we'll have the resources that will lead us into a greater understanding of truth. And we'll have the resources to discern right from wrong, truth from error. So have you embraced, first of all, the truth about Jesus and been anointed with the Spirit of truth? It has to start there. If, if you don't start there, you will not understand many, many things about this life and the world around you. So verse 21, he says, I don't write these things to you because you do, 
I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. In other words, this isn't an evangelistic letter. He's not writing to inform you of the truth. He's writing to remind you that you already know the truth. That's what this says. And he's reminding us that we've been anointed by the spirit of truth. It's interesting that false teachers and false prophets in Jesus or in John's day would place emphasis on two special words that we've already talked about, anointing and knowledge. They would talk about anointing and knowledge. And that's what John talks about here. Do you remember the Gnostics in the New Testament? They claimed to have a special anointing from God that gave them a secret knowledge. Knowledge that others didn't have. That's what the word Gnostic means. It means knowledge. And they come up with all kinds of seemingly intellectual insights that redefine the nature of good and bad of right and wrong, of creation and how that came about, and of Christ and who he was. With their secret knowledge, they redefined all of this and said, if you really want to be saved, you got to come to us. We've been anointed and we have this secret knowledge and you need to know it. But John says, that's hooey. He's a nonsense. He says in verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit and all of you know the truth period. You know it already. So if what the Gnostics are saying is contrary to this truth that you know, then what they're saying cannot be true as well. And it cannot come from the truth. Because he finishes verse 20 by saying, because no lie comes from the truth. So what is truth? How would you define it? If somebody said, well, what is truth? Here's my definition. Truth is that which is absolutely right all of the time, no matter what. Don't miss this. Truth is that which is absolutely right all of the time, no matter what. In other words, it's not relative to the situation. It doesn't even depend on what anyone believes. Let me illustrate that. Something can be true even though no one believes it is. And something can be false even though everybody believes it's true. The truth is not dependent on what people believe. And it's not relative. It's absolute. Here's another way you could say truth is absolute. And then another characteristic about it, it never changes. Truth never changes. If it changed, well then it wasn't true in the first place. I always get a kick about how and, and I understand, I mean, like you read textbooks and they'll put this stuff out there like this is the absolute truth. And then like a few years later, they go, oh, we learned something new and it completely rewrites the history books. <laughs> and now they put out new truth. Well, if the truth changes, it was never true in the first place. Truth is absolute and it never changes. Now, what really concerns me today is that the definition and even the very existence of truth is being called into question. If you go out in the world and share some of the things that you know are true, you're almost certainly going to encounter somebody who will say, well, that's your truth. That's your truth. That's not my truth. As if 
we can have different truths and they both be right. It's known as postmodernism. And it's the prevailing philosophy of today. It's being propagated from the very highest institutions of learning in our country. And so we need to know what it is. See, there's no such thing as your truth. There's the truth. And then there's opinions and perceptions. But there cannot be your truth and my truth and they be different things and both be true. It's just not possible. Postmodernist thinking asserts that there are no universal truths. Get this, whether scientific, philosophic, or religious. No universal truths. Only relative truths based on each person's experiences. Now that sounds just like the time of the judges, doesn't it? In the book of Judges, it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They didn't do what was right. They did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, they followed their own version of the truth. That's just your truth. This is my truth. My truth lets me do this. Your truth doesn't let you. You really want to understand this because postmodernist philosophy is shaping the world we live in. And it's antithetical to the gospel. It's totally antithetical to the word of God. Postmodernists say you can decide how you want to define right and wrong and I'll decide how I want to define right and wrong and you have no right to question my truth because this is my truth. That's just your truth. So you can't make a declarative statement such as marriage is between one man and one woman. No, that's your truth. Or abortion is murder. That's your truth. You can't even say there are only two genders anymore. That's just your truth. I mentioned that back in June, my son Nathan attended a rally down in Geneva. It was a gay pride rally, and it was called Family Pride in the Park, and it was sponsored by four area churches. Churches. He went there to interact with the members of these churches and try to understand how they arrived at their beliefs. And so he did a series of interviews and he asked, can I record you? Would it be okay? Yeah, sure. And so he interacted with quite a few people. And one of the sponsored churches was the Unitarian Universalist Society of Geneva. It's not actually a church in a biblical sense, meaning it's members of the body of Christ, but they use that term church to describe themselves. And their homepage says this, join us in our search. We don't have all the answers and frankly, we don't think anybody does. That's why we focus on a continuing search for truth and goodness and openly embrace all opinions and all beliefs and all lifestyles. It's all true. You can, you can go there. Um, Universalist, Unitarian Universalist Society of Geneva, I think is UUSG.org. Well, Nathan interviewed a lady from this church, and she was really pleasant, seemed like a delightful, nice person, and she allowed him to record their conversation, and I listened to it several times, and she said that their, churches, their church embraces all religions and all beliefs and all lifestyles, just like the website says, and then she touted that she has three children who were raised in the church, and they all believe different things, and Nathan asked her, she said, so are they all right? And she said, absolutely, they're all right. 
And he went on to make the point that they can't be all right if they believe contrary things. And do you know what her response was? Your truth and my truth can differ. It's just your truth. There's your postmodernism. Oh, and by the way, her husband teaches philosophy at ECC where Nathan attends. He's pounding this into the heads of our children. Now, I'm not against college. I'm not against higher learning. But I am against lies, falsehoods. I'm for the truth. At one point, Nathan put his hand on a tree and he said, if you believe that's a tree and I believe it's a rock, are we both correct? She said, so that's something physical. It looks like a tree and feels and smells like a tree. It's a tree, but belief is something spiritual. It's different. It's not physical. It's a concept. So it's not the same. Belief is just a concept. Well, I don't agree with that, but be as it may, I would have liked to have taken her back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to what it says. That which was from the beginning, we have heard which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That's not a concept. That's something physical. They saw it. They heard it. They touched it. We're not talking about concepts. It's as real as that tree. But regardless, whether it's a concept or something physical, Truth is absolute. It's not relative. It's not dependent upon what somebody believes or their experiences with that. G.K. Chesterton, he was an English theologian from the early 1900s, and he said this, It is often supposed that when people stop believing in God, they believe in nothing. Alas, it is worse than that. When they stop believing in God, they believe in anything. That is so true, isn't it? We embrace all religions and all beliefs and all lifestyles. We believe in anything. So, you know the truth. Believer, you have access to the truth. You have the spirit of truth in you. God's word is truth. So let's look next at foregoing the lies in verses 22 and 23. This is where it really gets down, right down to the heart of it. Look what it says. Who is the liar? It's a man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. God doesn't mince words in this passage, does he? He just puts it out there. The man who denied Jesus is a liar. It doesn't matter if that person is nice, well-intentioned, sincere, if that person denies Jesus is the Christ, they're a liar and their soul is lost. Because here's the fact. Salvation is tied to a proper understanding of who Jesus is. In other words, it's not enough to just believe in Jesus as in to believe that he existed. You must believe that he is the anointed one. The Son of God, the Savior, who came and died and rose from the dead to offer us righteousness in exchange for our sin. You must believe that. Jesus himself said, if you don't believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sin. 
pretty stark statement. Well, according to a, a Barna poll in 2015, 92% of American adults believe that Jesus was an actual historical person. 62% of American adults say they've made a personal commitment to Jesus and that it is still an important part of their life today. But only 56% believe that he was God. Now I'm actually surprised it's that high. 56% of American adults back in 2015 said they believe that Jesus is God. Almost every cult either denies the deity of Christ or some core truth about who he is, or they deny a core truth about salvation, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in what Jesus Christ has done for us. They all deny some core truth about Jesus or the gospel. So here's the test. If you want to know where a group stands in regard to the true gospel, the only gospel that's able to save, just ask them about Jesus. Who is he? What was his purpose? How does one come to know him? This will be really revealing. But a word of warning. You got to get beyond just the words that they use. You got to dig into the meaning of the words because they will use words that sound like one thing, but underlying that is a whole redefinition of what that word really is. Like I said, that church in Geneva, that's not a church by a biblical definition. For instance, Mormons say this, we believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Jehovah, the promised Messiah, Redeemer and Savior, the way, the truth, and the life. That sounds like Orthodox Christianity, doesn't it? But when you dig into it, they don't believe that the Son of God was with God in the beginning. Rather, they believe he was born of God, just like angels and humans. In fact, they believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Jesus was Satan's older brother, created by God. And he earned his rank of God through obedience to God in his premortal state. But it gets worse. They believe you too can attain Godhood after your mortal lives. You can become a God just like Jesus if you're good enough. Isn't that what the serpent said to Eve? You can be like God. Just take this and eat. Where do Mormons get this teaching? Because I haven't found it anywhere in the Bible. Ah, they believe that Joseph Smith in 1830 was given a special anointing. And he was given secret knowledge. And he recorded it in the Book of Mormon. That's modern day Gnosticism. They say the Book of Mormon is the inspired word of God and they put it on par with the Bible. Special anointing, secret knowledge. It, it's in conflict with what God says. He says, no lie comes from the truth. This is not the truth. What about Jehovah's Witnesses? They say this, Jesus the Christ is a created individual. The second greatest personage of the universe. Jehovah God and Jesus together constitute the superior authorities. But when you dig beneath the surface, they don't believe that Jesus is God or that he pre-existed with God. Rather, he was a creation of God. 
Yet the Bible says that through him, Jesus, all things were made. Apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. How he, could he be something that was made and yet the one who made everything? It doesn't go together. The teaching of the witnesses contradicts the word of God. Now, it's a really clever way for the enemy to deny who Jesus really is and thus pervert the gospel. What about Islam? That's the second largest religion in the world. 25% of the world's population identify with Islam. They say they're Muslims. Well, the Quran has a lot to say about Jesus. It says that he was born of the Virgin Mary without a human father. And it gives him these great titles such as Messiah, Son of Mary, Messenger, Prophet, Servant, Word of God, and a Spirit from God. And they say he did many miracles by the permission of Allah. And he was a great prophet, not as great as Muhammad, who came in 630, I'm sorry, 570 AD. Not as great as Muhammad, but he was still a great prophet. And here it comes. He was not God's son. He was simply a created being of God. This is what Muslims say, but don't take my word for it. Forgive me, but I'm going to put a passage from the Quran up here. I want you to see it for yourself. The Quran 572 through 75. Those who say Allah is the Messiah, son of Mary, have certainly fallen into disbelief, or in some translations, they blasphemed. The Messiah himself said, O children of Israel, worship Allah, Allah, my Lord and your Lord. Whoever associates others with Allah in worship will surely be forbidden paradise by Allah. Their home will be the fire, and the wrongdoers will have no helpers. Those who say Allah is one in a trinity have certainly fallen into disbelief. There is only one God. If they do not stop saying this, those who disbelieve among them will be afflicted with a painful punishment. Will they not turn to Allah in repentance and seek his forgiveness? And Allah is all forgiving, most merciful. The Messiah, son of Mary, was no more than a messenger. Many messengers have come and gone before him. His mother was a woman of truth. They both ate food. See how we make the signs clear to them, yet see how they are deluded from the truth? Jesus is just another guy, a creation of God. He is not God's son. And if you say so, you're going to hell. The fires are for you. They say anybody who equates Jesus with God, that's blasphemy. Isn't that the same accusation that Jews made against Jesus at his crucifixion? You heard it for yourself. He said, he's God, that's blasphemous. Crucify him. Well, the Bible declares that Jesus is the son of God. That he pre-existed with God. That he's equal to God. His miracles demonstrated it and history confirms the miracles that he did. But the Bible also warns that others will come preaching another Jesus. It's what it says in 2 Corinthians 11, 4. Preaching another Jesus, a different Jesus, a pseudo-Jesus. Let me read you another passage, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. 
In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. There you go. I just pointed out three of them to you. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims. They all say the same thing, that Jesus was not God. They're preaching another Jesus. They're false prophets and false teachers. And verse 22 of our text says, they're liars. Now, I should note that the term false teacher gets used rather loosely in Christian circles today. You can have a, a pastor or a well-known author, and maybe they, they believe in something about some non-essential thing, like maybe, I don't know, a translation of the Bible or a social application of the truth. Something that's just not a core topic or something on spiritual gifts. And many believers will be quick to call that person a false teacher. You're a false teacher if you believe that that's the way to help the poor or whatever. But scripture is very clear and very specific. The terms false teacher and false prophets almost always apply to somebody who denies the deity of Christ or some other core truth about his nature or the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. That's what the Bible talks about when it speaks of a false prophet or a false teacher. So we just want to be careful in how we use those terms. Once again, Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. 8.24. He doesn't say that to be mean or spiteful. He says it to be truthful. So if you're like me, you ask the question, why does it matter so much who Jesus is exactly? Can't we just believe in God and be saved? Can't we just believe that Jesus was and be saved? Why does it matter specifically who he was? Well, I'm going to give you three reasons. First, if Jesus is not God, then he was not an acceptable sacrifice for your sin. And he has no power to save you or me, period. He can't save us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, Jesus, because he always lives to intercede for them. And Hebrews 10.14, By one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Only God can do that. No man can do that. Secondly, if Jesus is not God, then we can't worship him. We're to worship God alone. Yet Philippians 2.10 says, at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And on the earth. That's worship. And Hebrews 1.6, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. If he's not God, we can't worship him. Number three, if Jesus is not God, then the things he said about himself were ludicrous. They were crazy talk. Things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or before Abraham was, 2,000 years ago, I am. I was there before him. That's crazy talk. If you're not God, you're probably familiar with what's been called C.S. Lewis's trilene, trilemma. Like the dilemma is two things, a trilemma is three things. He says, Jesus is either liar, 
lunatic or Lord. He cannot be just a good teacher. Because if he said these things and knew they were false, he's a liar. If he said these things and didn't know and they were false, he was a lunatic. But if he said these things and they are true, he is the Lord. He can't just be a good teacher. He's either the Lord or he's a liar or a lunatic. You choose. Jesus is the Lord. Think about the stakes in all this. If the enemy can convince people, Americans, Muslims, anybody else, that Jesus is not God, then he can deny them eternal life and he can deny Jesus the worship that he deserves. He's like, jackpot. I'll just convince people that Jesus existed, but he's not God. You can worship the Father. We believe in the Father, but not Jesus. Verse 22 says, who is the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Remember from last time, I think it was, Antichrist means one who opposes Christ. And last week, we looked at verse 18, which says, even now many Antichrists have come. It's not referring to the Antichrist. It's referring to many people who share the same spirit as the Antichrist. And we also noted that 1 John 4, 3 says, Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. The plain outright opposition of many religions to the truth of Jesus is one thing and it's out there but just as prevalent and perhaps more dangerous is the subtle opposition to Jesus that spread through our schools and through our culture it can be as subtle as promoting secularism or denying absolute truth this is antithetical to the word of God it's the spirit of Antichrist. Well, final point to note in verse 23 is the connection between the Father and the Son. The end of verse 22 says, he denies the Father and the Son. And verse 23 says, no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So many false teachers will say that they believe in God the Father and they worship him, but they disagree with the Bible about who Jesus is. But these verses say that to deny the Son is to deny the Father also. That's because belief in the Father and the Son are inseparable. They're one God. Jesus said in, in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And when he did, you know what the Jews did? They picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he was calling himself God. They weren't wrong. He was calling himself God, but they were wrong about who he really was. He was, in fact, God. He said in John 14, 9, anyone that has seen the Father, or anyone that has seen me has seen the Father. You can't separate the two because they are one God. And this verse draws that out. Well, there's a lot in these three verses, but... Let me wrap it up by going back to where we started. Let's play another game. Only this time let's call it four truths and a lie. 
about Jesus? Can you discern which is true and which is false? Statement number one, if you're a believer, you've been anointed by the Holy Spirit and you know the truth. You might know all the deep truths of Scripture, but you know the truth of the gospel of who Jesus was and what he did for you and you've trusted in him. There's a lot more to learn as you grow and the Spirit will lead you in those deeper truths. But if you're a believer, you've been anointed by the Holy Spirit and you know the truth. Number two, truth is absolute, not relative. Truth never changes. Number three, it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus so much as that you believe in him. Number four, belief in the Father and the Son are inseparable. They are one God. All right. Which one's not true? Number one. Number two. Number three. Number four. Oh, number five. I knew my wife was waving at me for some reason. Thought she was shooing something off. Belief in the Father and the Son are inseparable. They are one God. There you go. Number five. Okay, I saw a few hands go up for number four. Here it is. Number four is a lie. See, the fact is, salvation is tied to an understanding of who Jesus is. Again, if you don't believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will surely die in your sin. God doesn't want that. He wants you to know the truth. And he, and he places it before you even today. But you do have to receive that truth. You have to get behind it and place your faith in that. That this is true. You have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And trust that his death and his burial and his resurrection was so that he might take away your sin and give you his righteousness in exchange. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father... How thankful we are that your word is truth. And your word is filled with truth about Jesus, who he is, what he did. He came in the flesh, fully God and fully man. Sinless in all that he did. And that he died on the cross for our sin. And he rose to life again for our redemption. And he will return to judge the world in truth. God, we can know this with absolute certainty. You didn't send your son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Not through any works of our own, but through faith in his finished work. And God, if there's anyone here who has not put their faith in Jesus, who has not received the spirit of truth, then I pray that they would do that this morning. God, we know that you're able to save completely those who come to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that truth. God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.